Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Uh, so, Joby, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the Tesseract podcast today. And I am I'm particularly uh, interested in this topic, and I think uh, your work, uh, feeding victory, is is a um, outstanding overview of the development of logistics over the last you know uh, several hundred years. Um, so I'd just like to plug that there for you. Uh, but I'd like to begin uh, with uh, with your background. Right and and how you ended up uh, studying military logistics because you you are an operator, right? Um, yeah. So first off, Matt, thanks for having me on. Um, it's really nice to to talk to you all and to to talk to you and uh, to talk about the book. Thanks for the plug there. I do appreciate that. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the reason I got interested, I, I grew up in a little place called Bloomfield, New Mexico, which is up in the Four Corners area, and it's actually the natural gas capital of the world. Believe it or not, is is there in a in a very small town, and my parents worked in a small business supporting the oil field workers and, and um, refineries. And so my earliest memories are going to their shop and I was really fascinated with the scale. There's a scale for weighing things and there was a book next to the scale. And over time I learned when I was little, that book was the freight book. And so at the time, believe it or not, freight rates were actually regulated by the government in the late seventies. And so you look on the, you'd weigh the package You'd look on the freight rate and then you'd send it. And that was a big part of my parents' business. They were either sending things via the postal service or UPS at the time, which was uh, kind of a new thing locally or some local trucking company or someone who worked for my parents would be taking it in their truck or car uh, to refinery. So it literally was kind of part of the DNA of how my parents ran their business and the DNA of how I grew up. You just kind of thought about that all the time. How much the freight cost was like the first question. So I kind of had that in my head um, already. Um, and then also, as I went to the uh, Air Force Academy and studied, I was a historian and I was very fascinated by New Mexico history. And part of that was the atomic bomb, right? So it was built in New Mexico, Los Alamos and um, the Trinity site there down near White Sands. And a lot of that, as I read this book called uh, Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, which is a fabulous work, very, uh, very uh, popular, but also very academic work. Um, very dense. Um, I was really fascinated by these two towns that got built up to manufacture uranium and plutonium for the first atomic bombs. And those were at Hansford, Washington at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And that, the logistics enterprise in that is amazing. They, the U.S. government literally creates towns out of nothing to do this. And they're secret and they're built up. But the whole conglomeration of industry, plus the military side of it, plus all this stuff together. And eventually I went to graduate school as a historian. I studied the Savannah River site. Um, which is Aiken, South Carolina. After the war, um, it was designed to build tritium for hydrogen bombs. And it was a huge, it was the most big undertaking the U.S. government has ever done besides the Moon Project. It was then Aiken, South Carolina, this huge place. And so just the whole logistics of how that all went together, all these small businesses, um, all the people, the stuff, the things that have to go together to do that. I was just really fascinated by that sort of backstory. Um, and then I went on to fly uh, C-21s and C-130s in the Air Force, which is at the, the, the pointy end of logistics, the pointy end of that transportation piece. Um, 
And when I did that, you'd be fascinated that you go fly somewhere. We have this advanced system. We have transcom. We have uh, deployment distribution operations centers and in theater and local air mobility divisions and you would take cargo somewhere and someone would say that's not what we ordered <laughs> and oh by the way we don't have a forklift to get it off and oh by the way we don't have any paperwork to say that we got it and you start going through these things it's just this massive complex problem that's always changing um and so that initial growing up and thinking about and doing and then doing on the other end in the military um i kind of couldn't help but do logistics and then sort of the coup de gras was i was at transportation command um and I really got there as an operator. I was really with true loggies. So Navy suppos, Marine Corps officers, Army officers. And they're they're even much more bifurcated, I felt, than the Air Force. So logistics specialties, there's just little, little slices of it all over. Um, and it was so fascinating to be there to watch true loggies work and to really see behind the curtain of that. So kind of all that together, um, I think that um, I was lucky enough to spend some time in my formative years and then in my military career doing it. So I think that's why I... I chose uh, I chose logistics and I felt like I could speak to it. Um, and I will say it is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Part of my problem of not being a pure academic and looking at logistics is um, my operational bias gets the best of me. So I will look at a primary source or I will look at a book and I will say, I know exactly what that problem is. I dealt with that problem in the Air Force. I understand it fully. And sometimes a little biased that way and I have to sort of step back and be like, oh, hold on a second. Are you looking at it right? So I have to, I have to watch that myself. Um, and I also tend to be, too academic for operators when I write, and I'm too operational for academics. So, <laughs> but it's kind of <laughs> nice. It's a kind of a nice thing. Like if I talk to operators about it, they're like, "You're using words I don't like." And if I have to talk to academics about it, they're like, "I don't understand what you mean." And so yeah. it's kind of it's kind of been a nice. I feel like I'm a multi paradigmatic translator or something, and so that's kind of fun. But it's also a little bit of a challenge. But that also that's what makes you unique, right? And right, absolutely. And, you know, when, you know, as, as historians looking at how we tell the stories of the past and the fact that, Hey, like, um, you know, you're a pilot, you have experiences that I don't have. I mean, I got, I got a few hours behind a stick, but not, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously not, you know, thousands and thousands of hours, like a, uh, an air force pilot or airline pilot, Sure, uh, but it, that's what you know, what makes you unique. And I, and that's why I appreciate, you know, uh, you know, a piece of uh, why I appreciate your work so much. And I would, I would argue that anybody who's listening to this, who's a logistician, um, if you could just take your lens of the world, just like you're saying, and just say, I'm going to look at this purely as a loggy would look at it and say that thing in the planning meeting or say that to your boss, that's an operator, man, it's fascinating. Cause you think the things that you know, everybody knows and they don't. And I would say as a loggy, you have a lot of power, um, and a lot of knowledge about how things work below that you just take for granted that I will tell you that people in the five and the three don't, couldn't even imagine. So, you know, mm -hmm. to your point, I think it's a, it's a useful skill. Everybody's got their own piece. And so you, you've spent time studying, you know, hundreds of years of, of logistics all the way. Your book traces back to Lake George, right? right. Um, and, uh, that's the the French and Indian War, if I'm not mistaken, right? Nice and uh, <laughs> and uh, so that's between uh, 1750 and 1755-ish, right? Yeah, 55 to 59, but close enough for 300 years. It's, you know, mid-1850. Okay. Mid <laughs> uh, I guess the point is very long time ago. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, you've, your book also covers all the way up to Quezon, which was in 68 very good yeah very good well done uh <laughs> and uh, so that, that's a wide spectrum 
uh, of time that you covered. Um, what has remained consistent as you have studied all of these campaigns and case studies between the French and Indian War all the way to Vietnam? So I, I think the first thing that I found, and this is honestly after the book is published and I thought about it more, um, command and control is the first casualty of logistics. And of course, we always think about that in an operational context, right? Like I'm not going to be able to talk to some frontline unit or an aircraft or a ship or someone forever away, but literally command and control for logistics in terms of who needs what, how do I get it there? And then how do I move the forces and the stuff and the supplies there or control the transportation? It always breaks down in just an, uh, an almost, um, almost starting from scratch moment. I mean, all the case studies I did, whether that's Lake George. So we'll look at something like if, if you're familiar with General Braddock's march uh, to go to what at the time was it's it's Pittsburgh on the Monongahela to try to uh, divest the French of a fort they have there. Um, he does this fantastic job of planning. It's even hard to imagine. They they cut a road 12 foot wide for 200 miles and there's no roads like we think of them today. And if you've been in the Alleghenies, you're familiar with the East Coast at all, the dense forest, literally human beings cutting a road that wagons can make it through. Unbelievable. They make it 45 days. Nobody starves. Nobody really gets, they'll get intercepted by any Native American raiding parties. They do a great job of keeping everyone alive. And then suddenly in the moment they're in a battle and then they can't get word back and they can't even control their own forces to be able to move people, to get them away, to transport the wounded. It, the command and control of logistics just completely utterly breaks down utterly it just it, it does the same thing um and you could argue all the way uh to numerous battles at caisson even in vietnam where the north vietnamese spend a year investing logistics around it and the second the marine corps and the army start putting artillery and the air force starts putting bombers or fast movers they can't control enough food and water to literally bring food to, to any group of soldiers that's bigger than three people the whole thing just breaks down. Now, that's a lot of that's because the enemy gets a vote, right? The enemy gets to do that. Um, and worse complicated. It's just this unknown, this fog and friction of it that creates that. Um, and I just see that time and time again. Um, and we can, we'll talk about some more modern examples here as we get towards a, like a Camp Rhino in, in 2001. Same thing. All this planning, right? We have at that point, Transcom's been around for 10 years. We're going into Afghanistan to put the Marines, about a thousand Marines, in by Kandahar. They're going to put them by helicopter, and the Air Force is going to supply them by C-130s and C-17s and do all this. And literally, the way they did command and control for logistics, logistics, despite having cell phones, despite having COM, back to CENTCOM, to TRANSCOM and everything, it's two 05s sitting in the CENTCOM commander's office, and they are calling people on the phone, and they're using the magic Excel spreadsheet to figure out command and control of logistics. And so I would argue, and I know that's a big swath, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples where this didn't happen. Command and control is that first casualty of logistics. So um, in terms of putting that in sort of a, a functional thing today, um, any system you have, whether that's, like I'm dating myself here, whether it's the tip fit or gates or whatever great log mod or whatever great system you have, just pretend it's not going to work and no one's going to care to use it anyway. And so I, I just think that that's a that's a very consistent theme. So any of the command and control forces logistics are going to have to be rebuilt on the fly, no matter how much you plan for them. Um, so that's the first one. Um, the second is, is semi-related. Um, you can have the best planning on the war for logistics. You can think about all the avenues of approach. You can think about all the failures. You can think about contingency operations. And it's not going to meet reality. 
no matter what you do. So you're never going to efficiencyize it, efficiency, make it more efficient. It is always going to tend to brute force. So all the planning that you did to like get just the amount of people with just the right of ammunition to use your transportation assets to move this here and that here, that's all really nice. But in combat, it's basically an attendant brute force, which is the sort of old school apocryphal code about firstest with the mostest. And it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be efficient. There's going to be tons of radar rallies from the old series MASH out there grabbing their own stuff. There's going to be 06s saying, don't put that on that plane. I want this. I want that. Hijacking the whole system. And so all of that efficiencizing you want to do before war is not going to work. It is going to tend to brute force every time. And it did that in all these case studies, and I'm sure it will it will uh, do that again. And even something like, um, we'll take the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which if you all might remember, um, at the time, there's a lot of naysaying in the press, like, oh, look how long it's taken the Americans to get to Baghdad. But looking back, one of the most incredible, quick marches across terrain ever in history. I mean, we're talking two and a half weeks in there in Baghdad at the airport. That entire logistic system, which they had meant to be lean, light, lethal. They're going to build these little, they're not even going to build um, supply depots. They're just going to send their requirements back and they're kind of use the vehicles to kind of move themselves forward. Uh, the army officers talk about having to redo the entire thing because if you'll remember, um, some of the convoys were attacked way deep um, behind, the, behind the lines. Um, and the U.S. Army now had to sort of uh, redo that whole system. And they had to do things like, they had forgotten about the fact that just because it's a highway doesn't mean there's a light on it like in the United States. So there weren't lights. So at night in the desert, trucks are going off everywhere. They didn't know where to go. If it was sandy, dusty at all, they couldn't keep track of each other. So slowing everything down. So they had to redo that entire system, you know, the whole time. And so all that efficiency they had built in and thought about was great and kind of neat for about 10 seconds. And then it just, it's going to just tend to brute force, which is, it's going to be ugly and very expensive. So I think that's, the, those are, that's, those are the first two things. Um, and then finally, I'll end with sort of the title of my book. Um, it is about the human beings. It is about keeping the human beings alive. Um, in my research, uh, the fascinating thing when I was researching Lake George, when you look through the diaries, and there's not a ton of them. I mean, it's just not a lot of primary sources from 300 years ago. Um, I found a lot of people were very hungry, very fast. So there's a there's this guy, this private, and he's um, in Amherst Army, General Amherst Army, who's north of Lake George in 1759. And by October, he talks about not having any fresh meat or milk for six weeks. And this isn't like January when it's really snowy up there or any of this. This is in early October. Um, he talks about being hungry. And a lot of the soldiers at that time talked about being hungry. And I thought, well, of course, it's 1755. Everybody's hungry all the time. You know, it's a different world. We don't have the, they don't have the food supplies that we have. But if you look at Quezon, um, same thing. The Marines talk about being hungry and they really never, ever wanted for food. Um, but the North Vietnamese, like I talked about before, they couldn't move a patrol of more than three people. Or, I mean, warheads on foreheads, things were coming at them. They literally couldn't even feed themselves. Um, and something like, we'll look back at Guadalcanal, right? So you're a little more familiar as a Marine. I mean, the Marines in the Navy still, they're still mad about who did what to who. You know, the Marine Corps will claim the Navy left us for 18 days. And they were on 80 days of half rations. And that that's so inculcated their mind to never do that again, that that's still a debate between the Navy and the, and the Marine Corps years later. And all that to a point to say that I thought the things that would matter in logistics, especially at the pointy tactical end, when you're talking that final last thing, you're the last tactical mile, the last thing you're delivering was going to be stuff. 
who got the munitions there, who got the tanks there. Um, no, not at all. It was who kept their humans alive. And so that is an interesting thing. So, for example, the Japanese Iguala Canal continued to bring a lot, a lot of troops and a lot, a lot of munitions, and they didn't plan for the food. And they starved themselves, literally starved themselves, a waste away army that would never, 30,000 people that would never fight again. The Germans on the Eastern Front in World War II, wonderful, amazing march to the East. I mean, just incredible, the, the front line, you know, from like Chicago to Miami, you can imagine people, I mean, and for thousands of miles. Um, and they got them all there, but they didn't think about keeping their folks alive and feeding. So they were forced to forage, which created a huge animosity with the local population, which turned populations which weren't necessarily pro-Soviet, even though they'd been a part of the Soviet empire, um, against the Germans themselves. And so these, these two glaring historical examples of armies that really, really focused on the combat power, but forgot about the people they lost dearly. And so it's, it's kind of hard to think about. And in fact, you, you might hear in the Marine Corps today, there's a, there's a big thing about foraging. The Marine Corps is going to forage. And I would argue <laughs> as a polemic and very strongly for how long and how much do you really think you're going to get out of that? Cause you got about seven days, about seven days of no food your forces begun went from a very well-fed, trained, operational, able to execute offensive operations force. Seven days later, they're defensive only. Two weeks later, you're any beyond that, you're talking about corpses, casualties. So it doesn't take very long. And how much you can forage really, I don't know how much you can do. It's a good thought. We got to think about the humans without taking up precious transportation uh, space for stuff. And I'm not talking about delivering ice cream or nice meals or any of this stuff. I'm just talking about the sustenance to keep people alive. But Keeping the humans alive is important, um, and, and that goes to the morale piece, just the human element of it. And I always thought it was going to be the other way around, who got first is with the mostest with the stuff. It's really first is with the mostest with the stuff for the people. And that's so, so, so you know, kind of recapping here, the three big things, C2 is the first casualty. Um, efficiency is going to give way to brute force in you know, logistics. Um, and then finally, the human element is 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 the most important element, which of course, as your book and your shelf shows back there, Clausewitz say, "Hey, war is a human endeavor. That's what it is. It's in the mind, right? It's it, it is about humans. It's not about stuff." That was an outstanding breakdown, and and I got a few points I'd like to to highlight for uh, each of those three topics. Sure, I think you know to to address your first point, I think logisticians in particular. Uh, need to be familiar with uh, systems destruction warfare uh, when we're yes. looking at command and control. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and and systems destruction warfare for our audience is essentially um, the PLA's strategy to destroy our infrastructure rather than, you know, uh, like a traditional understanding of hey we have you know we have soldiers against soldiers aircraft against aircraft like not a conventional fight right sure. hey how do we get after command and control capabilities logistics capabilities um how do we get after what sustains the fight and deem the enemy incapacitated instead of fighting the enemy face to face so I think that that ties in and and to you know your your first piece of hey the first casualty of logistics is command and control. We like to say um, 
centralized command and decentralized execution. Uh, I would still argue that it's centralized command and centralized execution, the way we operate. And we need to be comfortable with, with outcomes. Absolutely. And if you, um, if you even look at like the recent Afghanistan airlift stuff, and I, this guy, Joey Brewer, major awesome guy from Charleston, he wrote a great little thesis about that. And it's, it's, it's pretty emotional because it's close in, but when you look at that, that's exactly what happens in my view. Some of the not so pretty parts of that happen because it really centralized command and, and execution there. People who were in the field felt like they had to call back to the United States to figure out what to do. And you kind of go, man, that, that almost feels like, you know, it almost feels like that, you know, that, that 2000 mile screwdriver kind of thing, just like you're saying, agreed. As you hit your third point with, uh, you know, keeping humans alive and, and the human nature of war and the human element of war, um, uh, I recently uh, had a uh, conversation in a podcast with with David Maxwell, and uh, we were talking about the human nature of war, um, and and we were talking about how air power entities historically and culturally struggle with appreciating the human nature of war uh, because we emphasize our decision-making to the health of aircraft um, rather than the individual airmen. No, and you, you bring up a great point. I think, you know, in the Air Force in my years, I mean, who were maintainers till they, till it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. we, you know, and they're not, but then we don't structure them. Sorry, my opinion, we don't structure and train them to be able to do that. So it's one thing to be in the Marine Corps and you're like, okay, man, I'm going to go to Marine Corps basic training. I'm going to go to infantry school in California for six. And that is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be hardcore about it in that way. Whereas the maintainers, I think it's so technical. It's so hard to get your skills up. We spend a lot of time fixing the machine. Like you said, not like, hey, can we really do, can we really do surge ops for 10 years? I think we've proven we can. I think, I think we, you know, I think just in terms of retention rates, just in terms of morale and, and maintainers, they, they kind of love to have it suck too. They, they, they're a little bit, from my perspective, they're kind of a little bit like the Marines, like, man, let's make this be harder because it'll be more fun. So they kind of wallow it in a good way in a very good, you know, and they're very good sports about it. But I think you're right. We, we haven't structured ourselves and trained ourselves in a way that you can keep that pace in terms of, because the machine is always demanding. There's always something to fix on it. Like you said. Mm -hmm. And there's a human behind every machine. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think oftentimes in the Air Force, and I, I'm guilty of this, you just think it is you really, really do focus on the machine. If we just get the machine running, everything else will be OK. And I think sometimes it's to the detriment of long term success. And especially when things start going to the to the right in a hurry where you're like, man, this is going bad. You sometimes don't have the system or the thinking or the leadership in place to be able to get yourself back in a different because you haven't trained or thought about it that way. Mm hmm. Uh, so in your book, I mean, you you dive into uh, French and Indian War, World War One, World War Two, and and, and Vietnam. Right. Um, you know, all of which you know the campaign the campaigns were you know transformative or gleaned uh, some incredible insights. Mm -hmm. um, but what campaigns did not make it in the book that were like on on the short list uh, to be you know researched and wrote about? Yeah, so I think. Um... And of course, all these campaigns that I think about, the ones I missed, they've been well written about. So some of that's a little tough. It was nice to choose things that were a little less um, as, as well, they have all been focused on a lot. But um, I think the first one in the Revolutionary War, I, I, I think, and, and, and I apologize, there may be an article or a book about that that I've missed. But I really think um, Yorktown 
you know, so the the sort of the the ultimate battle in the Revolution War kind of ends it all. It a lot of is talked about the combat power of that, but I don't think a lot of has looked at the logistics piece of that. And the reason I'm saying is that it's kind of amazing the way Washington works himself down there to get them captured. Now, granted, it's the French fleet that out there is going to, you know, the the British won't needed their ride. Cornwallis at Yorktown when he's surrounded needs his ride. Mm-hmm. He didn't have it. And really, that's the whole story. Is it's really a story of logistics because his bus that he needed to get on to get away from the to get away from the colonists, it's not there anymore. It's a war of logistics. So I I wish I would have put that lens on that battle and been able to have time to look at that. I think that would have been fascinating. Um, the other one that I I think I missed, I really missed a great opportunity, was of course some Civil War stuff. I I, I looked ahead for certain technical reasons. I was trying to make sure I was well into the Industrial Revolution because. You know, French and Indian War is not World War One is clearly. Um, I think Vicksburg um, in the Civil War, looking at it from a pure logistics point of view, because what Vicksburg proves is the North has this capacity, railroads, land power stuff to even circumvent their own superior at sea at well as well. So they really use that, and really, you could argue that had they understand this earlier, which it also also plays out in 1862 at Antietam, same thing. McClellan has this wonderful logistics machine. He should have crushed Lee. He had the army to see, he had all this logistics. Reserves. He could have just ended the war right there. And a lot of the times I think Vicksburg's the same way, but Vicksburg's this nice interplay between land power and water power and an amphibious operation. I really wish I would have looked at that in terms of logistics. That I think that would have helped sort of bracket, like it's a little rushed in the book when you go from French and Indian War wagons and bateaus to like world war one you know thousand artillery shells per square meter trains steamships just submarines it just it's a little bit so that would have been a nice way to kind of transition it i think um and then looking modern i really gosh i i just didn't have the space there was this thing when i was at transcom it's called the northern distribution network and what happened was in afghanistan as you get into 08 and 09 the southern entry port in Afghanistan, the Americans, is the port of Karachi in Pakistan, goes up through Pakistan into Afghanistan. The problem was the Pakistani government and the, the danger of that area of the world, it was oftentimes shutting off the ground line of communication in Afghanistan. So there were times when, believe it or not, the Air Force was flying in fuel for the Army to use on their trucks. Very brute force and works, but extremely cost prohibitive. Like, just, you should not move fuel on airplanes. Very, very expensive. Um, so when I was at Transcom, um, the five there, Emma Harchek, who's a wonderful logistician, and General McNabb, they said, why don't we figure out how to go sea to Europe? From Europe, we'll go train all the way to Afghanistan through all these countries that don't normally work together. And they literally built, and military guys work with the State Department, but it was a lot of mill to mill. I mean, they just forced it, and they forced this whole northern distribution network, and they cut the costs, and they made the delivery times faster. And that whole thing was a fascinating piece of how a couple of logisticians actually drove national policy like at the strategic level and so i really wish i would have had i think if i had had yorktown Pittsburgh, and that one i could have just like made i could have i could have done it all but i would have needed a couple more years so those are the three that i really think about that i that i kind of miss because i think i think those are those are pretty amazing stories yeah i think with with yorktown in particular something that we forget as americans is you know from the british perspective the American Revolution was a drop in the bucket compared to the <laughs> remainder of, of the power that they were projecting, you know, across the world, right? Absolutely. Yep. And and they were, you know, I think 
uh, Rick Atkinson in his latest book, um, The British Are Coming, kind of highlights this, right? When he he talks about that, hey, they're asking, is this even worth it? Is it even worth to, to fight in the 13 colonies? It, yeah. It's not. It's we, we, not. We have crown jewels all over the world, right? So what's the... You know, what's the point here? So when you have like your your Navy, which is, you know, the, the Royal Navy being that that um, principal branch of service projecting power across the world, you don't have many assets to right. dedicate to the war in the new world or, you know, in, in putting down the rebels. Um, and then you couple that with the French fleet being able to concentrate, you know, their their logistics, their supply lines, their combat power in one location, you know, that's just a, um, and then strategically being able to, to cut them off, tactically being able to, to sever their supply lines, just an out, an outstanding, and and really the, I think the, in the revolution, this, in the Southern colonies, uh, is almost like an underappreciated campaign, um, you know, and I think a lot of people want to focus on, uh, you know, up north in Saratoga and in the Battle of Long Island and the Siege of Boston. Yet they they forget a lot of what happened in South Carolina and what happened in in Virginia, and um, they forget a lot of those elements. Absolutely, and you you also forget like how much of the by that point the Southern Campaign, which Valley Forge kind of presages this, um, how much the logistics and the needs of the colonial army were causing the colonial army to be at odds with their own people because they're having to steal for, and forge from their own folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, straight out steal it because if you're giving continental dollars, it's not you know not worth a continental. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and just that whole fascinating part that they're you know is really creating a lot of tension, and it's a lot more brutal in the South, right? Um, and I think you're just bringing up a great point here that you know ultimately. The British, the whole war, had used their water transportation to get themselves out of all sorts of messes. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, they were able to move at will. Charleston, they lost it once, lost it twice, came back. They were always able to do that. And in Yorktown, suddenly Cornwallis must have been a little shocked because his ride had always been there and it wasn't. And um, the modern parallel that I worry about is um, from being an airlift guy. Uh, boy, our airlift has gotten us sure out of a lot of tactical messes for sure. And maybe some operationally strategic ones. It's gone in there to save us. But if you're if you can't and the enemy puts DeGrasse's fleet out there or they put some system you can't get through or they take it out on the ground before it takes off and they worry about the tankers instead of the fighters, man, you're suddenly your, your, your golden ticket, your golden bus home isn't there. Mm-hmm. And you kind of got to worry a little bit that in similar ways, maybe stretched thin, don't have enough assets, can't cover it all. And suddenly you're expecting your last line of transportation to come save you or logistics to save you and it can't. So mm-hmm. I, I think some, that's just a very good, I think a very good parallel a little bit to what's going on today. Although history does not repeat itself. You can't, you know, do any of that, but I think there's some good parallels. It does rhyme. You know, it might not it does rhyme itself, a lot. It, does it rhymes rhyme. a lot. <laughs> and, and it to kind of progress up to the civil war here. Uh, I think it's interesting. The Navy yard system that was created after the revolution, which leaned on that same strategy, right. Of, of you know, relying on uh you know that coastal naval resupply um and i live i, I live in navy yard in in washington dc and i think the people you know i'm sure there's plenty of people that live in this neighborhood that don't realize like hey like this was a critical hub to logistics and sustainment um of of the united states navy you know up through the the war of 18 or early 1800s war of 1812. I mean, this, uh, this base was established, I think in 1798, 1799. Yeah. Crazy. Right. And, 
um, leading up into the Civil War uh, to talk about the Battle of Vicksburg and and the Anaconda Plan. I mean, the Anaconda Plan was the the emphasis of, of the of the North strategy at that point was to constrain the South from supplies, from ammunition, from food. Right? You know, going back to starvation and, and, and hunger as we were as we were talking about. Uh, but I think one of the most incredible feats was the Americans' ability to um, execute troop movements with railroads. And yeah. move. I think that was huge. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, you know, I think that's part of the Vicksburg part that would have been really nice that I looked at that more. I mean, just the ability to do that and understand how to do that. And then you kind of realize a little bit as you look forward in time, both the wars of German unification and World War One, that was kind of a model actually for the next about six years of warfare. That's kind of how it was going to work to be able to mass troops in a good enough, you know, and get them far down. You were going to have to do that. And it really just was a huge advantage. That transportation advantage was so huge. And of course, there's been tons of studies about the miles of railroad in the north versus the south. And it just it was crippling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, coupled with. Uh, that piece of land power. Then, of course, the blockade, the South was just, had always been just like you talked about a little bit. They were very dependent on water transportation. They had to use, I mean, all, all the cottons going to Europe on the water. Everything they, everything they get from the nice handmade goods from the North, it's coming on the, you know, it's coming via water. It's not coming via the roads. And so they're dependent on water transportation. So when you've got the one, you've got the rail of the land and then you're chucked off from the sea, you almost, I mean, it's almost a, you know, fait accompli. It's almost over before it's over, though it's not, you know, 300,000 people die. So it's clearly not, but it, it, you know, that the ability to do that. And I think, again, I'm not even sure even the most shrewd, northern generals who eventually are going to become you know grant and sherman they sure don't realize it at first what they have and for sure mcclellan does not like i said shocking after antietam the the logistics and reserves of personnel and stuff i mean they could have ran them they could have ran the army in northern virginia down and, and literally surrounded them and it would have been over but they don't realize that for a long time they don't realize that potential which is sort of interesting because the plan was right the strategy all worked it did. It worked out perfectly, but I just don't. I just don't think they realized what that what they could really do. Mm-hmm. And maybe not a, not enough loggies in the planning meetings. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think uh, I think McClellan, McClellan uh, words are hard a little bit. Um, was a little out of his element. I think for- absolutely. He, he he was fighting a different type of war. He was not into that. He, you know, he was a great rah-rah guy, which I appreciate. All of us appreciate rah-rah jumps, but he just couldn't understand what was really taking place in front of him. He just didn't have that kudo oil. He couldn't, he couldn't look and say, okay, I've got to do this. He didn't have that, that tact at the operational level, no operational genius at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, just for our, our listeners uh, edification, you talked about the German wars of uh, unification. Yeah, sorry. That's 1860s. Um, no, so, but you know it's perfect, right? Because that that's revolutionary war fighting capability um, to have railroads, right? And I think Max Boot, if you've read uh, War Made New, does a good job chronicling that. Um, yeah, um, and you know, Vomolke the Elder is the one who kind of figures that along with you know, it's sort of this, this whole thing of railroads plus the telegraph 
and then realizing that he could actually command this stuff beyond like line of sight or, or as fast as he could send a horse, he could start doing that. And so that's what allows um, they kind of fully realize that now it's going to haunt them in World War one, because they're going to think they can do it without the enemy getting a vote and they're going to be sorely mistaken. But um, that's the first time that that's really kind of all put together, both the command and control of it. And then that transportation asset. Uh, for mm-hmm. right. No, it's brilliant how you bring that up because Kind of, you know, as we talk about history and we talk about the DNA of organizations, the German army drew back to that same experience uh, while executing Blitzkrieg, right? Probably the most successful campaign in the history of warfare was the invasion of France in 1940. And that was a culmination of effective transportation and communications, command and control. Um, And, um, and that joint interoperability between aircraft, tanks, uh, and, and and infantry. I think it was just uh, an amazing, uh, not not only an, an an amazing campaign to dissect, but the um, the organizational culture which um, you know which enabled that. Not saying you know, hey. Third Reich, obviously awful, um, <laughs> but the military itself, like the the Wehrmacht, was uh, um, uh, you know truly innovated and uh, cooperated and communicated with each other to to be in a, an effective fighting force. They did, and you know they're going to take that lesson to the Eastern Front, and really, despite the far, fact of being stalled outside of Moscow in forty one, in forty two when they reorg and go towards the Caucasus and eventually Stalingrad, like I mean they are chewing up territory in ways that you can't fathom. Mm-hmm. Their other problem, though, is that they can never, ever properly think about sustainment. They're great about battlefield logistics. They'll devolve their trucks. They'll they'll use a horse. They'll do whatever it takes. They'll use people to move stuff. They're going to do great tactically, but then operationally at, at strategic levels, they just can't figure out sustainment. I mean, they're they're just you know. I, I think someone said a historian or he said once you know the, the Germans were uh, great at battle and crappy at war. And part mm-hmm. of that crappy war is awesome logistics at least tactically but then strategic and operationally they outran their supply lines as a matter of fact mm-hmm. and so again not to um, compliment them too much but the thing that i think we can learn from that is believe it or not your military can outrun its supply lines for a little bit mm-hmm. you kind of have to think about that and i want to give the marines a hard time now for talking about foraging but in some ways you got to think about the uncomfortable like how long can we really go what things can we let go? What can things can we devolve? What can things can we just say, you know, don't need that part. Sorry, good, not good enough. We'll accept that. And so I think that's a that's a part of it too, is that the three can outrun the five and the four. And mm-hmm. sometimes, and they probably are going to anyway. So you kind of have to think about those uncomfortable things because the Germans, they were able to do it. I mean, just like I said, just the poorest sustainment you could ever imagine from like building things in the factory to get into the field. It, it's, it boggles the mind. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, Adam Tews in his great book, Wages of Destruction, which I wouldn't necessarily uh, recommend reading because you'll you fall asleep. It's very, very dense and deep. <laughs> it talks about the whole inefficiency of the German economy and its inability to move forward. But anyway, sorry, I'm going down the rabbit hole of all this. You're just bringing no, it's some- great. <laughs> I want to keep on going down it. Um, the the German way, like just to kind of touch on something really quick with the German way of war, I find it so incredibly interesting that we latch onto it as an American military, like the relics yeah, we, of it. We, we do. And it just, we just do. And sometimes I feel like we're latching onto it too firmly. Uh, and it, and, and we are finding ourselves 
and and this is a culmination of a lot of different things. Oh yeah, um, the bureaucracy and the technical and, and tactical nature of of requirements and of the type of uh, you know wars we wish to we wish to wage. Um, but we we rag on the German militaries of the past that they were you know too short sighted tactical experts operational experts in the operational art um but failed to execute strategically um but i feel as though if we keep on going down that same path and latching on to their doctrine too tightly whether we know it or not i think we might find ourselves in a similar trap and mixing the the ways and means with what the ends truly are i agree and i think we you know I, as you you were talking it kind of got me said on the thing i think the thing we latch onto is we, we love this idea of speed man i mean in the american way whether it's i think it's them all the way through the oodle loop and whatever you want to think about it man we just want to get inside there and we're going to go faster man we're going to make you pay because we are going to decision cycle you to death the mm-hmm. problem is when you focus on just going through the decision cycle and you're not thinking about other things you get yourself in trouble because speed only speed can kill too and i think sometimes i think that's why we focus on them um because we we want that speed, boy. We want that quick, decisive. We're going to come hit you right now. Six ways to Sunday, four different ways, and it's all going to be over. Um, and I have this great quote here. In fact, I wanted to read it because this is, just brings up a point here. Um, Lawrence Friedman, who's a famous uh, British st- strategist, or st- historian who talks about strategy, in his book, The Future of War, which is just a history of the future of war, he says, you know, that the need for a quick victory put a premium on making the most out of the very first blows directed against an enemy. Um, first blows that could cause the defeat of their victims immediately. Far less written about was second and third blows, no less still casualties with no breakthroughs. And if I did that to tie your point earlier to now, um, I think that's where we're headed for. We think if we just bring enough stuff quickly and get through it quickly, the conflict, whatever it is, you can choose any scenario, any adversary, wherever you want, that'll be over fast. And nobody says, what if we can't get the tankers in the air? What if the ship's going out of California, the computers shut down on them? What if the harbor in, in, in place X is mined? Nobody ever says, hey, what if that first blow doesn't work? And I think that's I just think in some ways, I mean, you just really got me thinking about this, that we do. That's maybe the why why we love talking about the Wehrmacht is we love talking about the easy, quick victory. We don't want to talk about the slog, which it's probably going to be. I recently finished a book called Danger Zone by Hal Brands. And I forgot the other author. The, I forgot the co-author. And it and it talks about uh, the China threat. Mm-hmm. And talks about the diplomatic you know economic you know, you know military you know levers that are impacted with you know in, in pure competition and uh and in the conclusion says similar to to what you're saying people think that it's gonna you know something if it's gonna happen and no matter what the conflict is with whoever it's gonna be over in a matter of hours days or weeks yet the odds are we need to be prepared for something that lasts months and can even last years. Um, and, um, and, and the quick victory is simply just, it's not guaranteed on either end. Right. Um, 
And I think especially when you talk about great powers, right? It's one thing to talk about even a Russia versus Ukraine. It's an entirely different thing to talk about the U.S. versus China, because when the great powers go to blow, at least historically, right, there's no incentive to stop because we are remaking those lines on the map. Mm-hmm. Random Alley is getting remade. So when that's getting remade, you're not stopping. And in World War One, I, I mean, perfect example. I mean, goodness gracious, all the royal families were cousins. And we're not talking like second cousins. We're talking like first cousins. <laughs> and they literally blew each other to smithereens and took 500 years of history and they, you know, the Habsburgs are gone. The Windsors are never going to be the same. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is ruined. Turkey's ruined. The whole thing just goes, the Soviet Union's a thing at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Like it, the whole thing just gets blown up. And so this idea that the great powers would ever stop or there would be incentive to stop, it, it's not. Even if you're losing, why are you going to stop? We're going to get, <laughs> it's going to get remade. So I think it's just very, like you said, I, I think we just, we think of days and weeks and we're not really thinking the the long-term months and years. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of uh, contingencies in the Pacific, uh, let's take a, a deep dive into Guadalcanal. Um, and I think for our listeners, if you're not familiar with the campaign, if you've seen the Pacific in the first couple of episodes of the Pacific, uh, that was uh, the Battle of Guadalcanal. Um, the Americans first step, you know, towards the empire of Japan uh, in in our first offensive. And it, in my opinion, it is an excellent representation of a, you know, peer versus peer contested environment, um, in all domains, uh, land, sea, and air for both sides, right? Uh, and it was a victory that was uh, that was in question. It wasn't guaranteed, right? And as we as you know, we look back as the victors in World War II, we think that every every battle was a guaranteed victory, and you know we had a a perfect record of a hundred no, uh, but that that simply was was not the case. Um, what are some specific lessons that you glean from studying uh, Guadalcanal in particular that you think are important for warfighters to know today? Sure. Um, so I'll start off the first thing, just really quick book plug here. If you don't have Richard Frank's Guadalcanal, just Google it on Amazon, get it, put it on your shelf. You don't have to read it tomorrow. Today, just put, please put that on your shelf. Please get through it because, and what I ask you to do is read that book and put yourself in your current AFSC. You don't have to think of it as you're the president of the United States or you're Admiral Halsey or you're Admiral Yamamoto. Think about, uh, I'm in my special, just please do that for me. You will help yourself learn a lot about what problems you might face. So just imagine yourself there in your specialty. That'll help. So my first plug. Um, so I would say from logistics, the, the lesson is the crazy thing about logistics at Guadalcanal was the Americans had planned for this. They spent the entire interwar period doing things called War Plan Orange, which is how are we going to fight the Japanese? Now, the first thing that happens in the planning, I talked a little bit about this earlier, was that they had never envisioned going through the Solomons because it was too damn hard. We would never go through the Solomons because it's too far away. It's it's a you know 900 miles from New Caledonia. Like that's our closest base. We, it's very far away and it's very far away for the Japanese. We would never go there. And of course, that's the place they went. So that's the first part of this, the planning, even though they planned about it. 
at a strategic level, they didn't want to go there and they end up going there. And then at the tactical level of the campaign, as the Marines are going to wait ashore, so there's 10,000 Marines that are going to go on amphibs ashore. Um, they had planned for amphibious warfare, the Marine Corps during the interwar period. That's all they did. Every they were they knew they were going to do it. They were going to do it better than Gallipoli and that the Brits in, in the in the First World War had done it. And they were they had planned for it. And they had planned for the logistics sustainment. So a Guadalcanal, they actually have aircraft a couple of days before. We're going to survey the beaches. Well, the problem was the weather's a little bad. And as they get the ISR back, I really don't think they got any loggies in the room because no one said, hey, look, man, that beach seems pretty red beach. Where we're going to land. It seems pretty thin. And on top of that, nobody thought about, is there any um, tide? No one asked that question. And had anybody asked that simple question, the Marines would have fared better. So anyway, they go to land and they have 600 pioneers, which I'm not as familiar with the Navy Marine Corps as I should be, but pioneers are folks who are going, Navy personnel who are going to come on shore and they're going to help get all the stuff, not the people, but the stuff on the transports. And then they're going to get it put in piles and they're kind of going to make it all work out. Well, when they land on the beaches, the beaches are only about, there's about 40 yards of sand. That's it. And you're talking, they have to put all the sustainment for 10,000 dudes and all their ammunition and all their water and all their food. So the beach becomes a mess. And then on top of that, the Japanese know they're coming. So the Japanese are bombing them during the day. So that interrupts that logistics piece. And that little logistics piece of the Japanese bombing and them not knowing what to do, they have to send the transports out to sea because they're worried about them being caught in harbor. And even though the Japanese can only loiter for about two, three minutes, it's all the fuel they have and don't do much, it causes the whole thing to bog down. Well, when they come out in the morning, they finally give up at night. They're like, we got to stop. They stop. When they come out in the morning, the tide washed out about three quarters of their supply. Got washed out into the, into, the, into the bay. And at that point, that was a huge, huge food deficit for them. And that little strategic all the way to, we went to the place we didn't think of. We planned all this stuff. We brought all these people, but then we didn't get the ISR right on the beach. Suddenly, the Marines, um, because the Japanese are going to win some night battles out on the sea, the Navy has to leave the Marines. And they lost majority of their food. And luckily, they had stolen 10 days worth of food from the Japanese who, who ran away on the island into the jungle. Um, and that little logistics problem causes almost the whole thing to fail. And that is just so fascinating to me because had anybody been in a room and said, hey, the beach looks thin. We know it's thin. We're actually going to use other Marines who are standing around. It doesn't look like we're going to be too contested. Let's use other Marines to help lift stuff. Or let's have a plan for that. Or... Let's have a plan for what are we going to do when the bombers come overhead? They hadn't really thought of that. Or is there a tide? Had they even thought about the tide and said, let's wait till the morning to bring the vast majority of the sustainment in? They'd probably have been okay. And the whole campaign is different. The whole way it works is different. Um, and then at, at that point, what it's been become is, is a siege warfare between the Japanese who are going to bring what's called the Tokyo Express, which is if you've seen the movie, The Pacific, the Marines hate because they're going to bring them in on destroyers, Japanese soldiers, drop them off, and they're going to bombard the Marines every night. So the Marines come to dread it. Um, but the reason the Japanese are having to do it at night is the Americans own the airfield. And that airfield is the ultimate carrier because Marine Corps, Navy, and actually Army Air Force's aircraft are going to continue to interdict any shipping during the day from the Japanese. And the fascinating thing that happens here is the logistics is entirely dependent on another domain, entirely dependent. So whoever controls the air controls logistics. So when the night is, when the, in the day, the U.S., can do their own logistics because so they can keep it safe from the air and then they can bombard the Japanese and the Japanese can't do that. So they have to go at night. And then as the Marines build up more and more and get 
better fed and more sustainment in, the Marines are actually able to fly further in the night because they're going to use radar to help themselves land. They're going to use lighting on the airfield. And then they're really going to get after them to the point that by the end, the Japanese can't even send any ships at night. And then they're using submarines to try to drop off two and 300 pounds of food to feed 30,000 people a night. It's not even going to work. And and they they resort to the end and literally going to ships. They're throwing boxes off to try to get them food because they can't do it. And so the, this whole interplay behind the thing actually is a whole logistic story of how you keep these armies alive. Um, and so I think the fascinating piece is one, the Americans are going to innovate. They're going to do things differently. They're going to, they finally decide, you know what? This is brute force. I don't care what gets to Guadalcanal, just ship it. Stop worrying about it. If we lose it on the way, don't care. We're going to just, whatever boat we have, we're going to hook a, a tow thing to it. We're going to hook a, any craft we can, and we're just going to get it up there. And they're going to hook a quick do it. And the Japanese are going to decide, we want it fast. And those two logistics decisions um, kind of are going to wrestle with, and that's what's going to happen. And the Japanese who decide on fast and decide on munitions and the Americans who decide on people and food are going to win. But it's just a very fascinating interplay between all of this. And it really shows how, you know, logistics, especially in the end of that supply line, and especially when great powers are fighting each other, it's it's the difference maker and everything from a tactical way it works till, till the end. So ultimately the way this is going to go is, you know, in August we have, 10,000 Japanese will say in about 10,000 Americans, and they're going to grow to 30 by November. Um, and by mid-November, those 30,000 Japanese soldiers, which is only, we're only talking like 60, 65 days, they're almost dead. They're nothing. And now that it's not going to feel like that to the Marines and the Army guys that are trying to root them out of the jungles. They're not going to feel like they're dead. It's going to feel like a big, huge battle, but they, they're they they're non-functioning. They can't do any offensive operations. And by mid-November, the Marines have 40,000 cases of beer. And so just in this very short order, it just shows you how logistics done properly and then hook or crook on the fly, learning how to do it better gets you wrong. Whereas the Japanese, they didn't think about logistics at all in ways that we can't imagine. And that really dooms them. Um, and again, just that whole interplay, the fact that logistics now, and especially in the modern context after Guadalcanal and in the present, it depends on other domains, whether you have to have control of the air. So we can take Ukraine and Russia as a perfect example. And I know everybody makes fun of the Russian tank columns. I'm not sure we do any better moving all those people down a dirt road. I don't know how the way you do it, but the Russians in this current battle, and I haven't done a ton of research, but just, just look at open source stuff. They never got control of the air. So they've never been able to control their logistics and necessarily the Ukrainians haven't either. It's been some, it's been a struggle. So, and what does the control of the air mean when you have missiles that can go a long, long ways? It doesn't require an aircraft to do it or there's drones or these other things. So what does control there mean? And then I also think there's a, there's probably like you've kind of hinted out, there probably is an information cyber piece to this that without that, our systems might fail. So I, I just think Guadalcanal is fascinating that way. I could talk about it for hours and hours, uh, probably boring anybody listening at this point, but I think it's just very, very important to consider that as a logistician, you've got to be in their initial planning and it can't just be well, that's not logistically feasible. You've got to give some real world, take your experience and look at it and say the tactical things that the operators need to know to keep themselves alive. And I think, like I said, at Guadalcanal, had anybody in the room said, man, that beach is too is too 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 narrow. The whole campaign's a different thing. So mm -hmm. I'd like to emphasize a few points that you made. Um, you know, going back to your very first uh point that that we made in the conversation. The, the third point of the first point, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, keeping humans alive. Uh, I mean, Guadalcanal was called Starvation Island, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, the Marines, sailors, soldiers, and airmen that were on the island were living off of 
Japanese rice, right? The first Marine division in particular was living off of Japanese rice for, you know, for, for a good portion of that campaign. Um, and for those who have watched the Pacific with the, you know, maggoty rice being, you know, dumped on the plate. I mean, that's, that's what they were. Uh, yeah. That's what they were living off of. And, you know, and to tie back to our logistic strategy, you know, with persistent mission generation and, and we look at adaptive basing, I mean, the whole reason the Pacific campaign unveiled the way it did is like, there's a reason we could not sail our Navy directly to Tokyo. Yes. yes. We, we had to take islands to base aircraft yep. because aircraft were our, you know, premier form of power projection and we're able to control other domains of warfare and air, you know, air power still does, as you alluded to with the conflict in Ukraine, uh, it still is the dominant domain of warfare. And, um, and looking at, um, and I want to kind of pick your brain more on the sustainment of the cactus air force, right? Because I think, right, yeah. uh, I think that, we're going to be in situations that are going to be similar, right? Hey, we're not going to have enough like aircraft parts. We're not going to have enough food. Um, we're all, uh, sustainment is going to be insanely difficult, you know, just for human beings alone. Right. And then also uh, with, with the machines of war. Um, but also actually wait, before I forget, uh, I do also want to mention with uh, Japanese uh, sustainment, I mean, the reason they were on destroyers in the first place is because transports were moving too slow. They couldn't go from Rabaul to Guadalcanal in a sufficient amount of time. So they had to put them on uh, on destroyers that can move a little quicker, right? Because you know, people, some people might think, well, why didn't they just you know put troops on transport ships? Um, and, and then they to, yeah, and they simply and they, they, sorry, they simply couldn't do it because the transports could not get there quick enough in the day. Exactly. So the second the day was up, Cactus Air Force is going is coming after him all day, all all all, all the time. And so, um, whereas the Marines on the island dreaded the Tokyo Express because they felt like it was a manifestation of Japanese combat power, it was actually the ultimate manifestation of Japanese weakness. Exactly. Not not to the Marine that's getting shelled every night. Trust me, did not feel like Japanese weakness, but it was actually a sign of their inability to do that. And the, you know, the fascinating thing is the Japanese doggone till the end one near every surface battle on the sea so the, the, the paradigm before right i mean if you told the japanese hey you know what uh you're going to sink four u.s aircraft carriers and uh you're going to win you're going to sink about 10 battleships and uh, 30 destroyers they just said we'll take that all day but instead they had thirty thousand dead people they skirted off an island so it's anyway I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, me too. I'm still going. Uh, but yeah, yeah. When, whenever you have Iron Bottom Bay, right? Like that's the name of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you know, what yeah. are your expectations? Uh <laughs> right. So you know, the Japanese controlled the surface of the sea, and they lost terribly, horribly. Just mm -hmm. off, you know, because air power matters. It, it does matter, and it, it continues to matter. Mm -hmm. And then also, this is when we look at. Um, the economic lever of power. And, and uh, I think in, in the book, Why the Allies Won, they highlight this uh, very well um, with there was a one-to-one -one ratio between uh, support personnel uh, in Japan 
and mm-hmm. the warfighter, right? So for every Japanese soldier, there was only one um, civilian that was in a factory, sure. um, you know, producing goods where I believe I don't I don't want to misspeak here, but I, I believe it was a, a about a 20 to one ratio uh, for, you know, a, an American oh, sure. worker on the home front uh, to the American soldier, sailor, airman or Marine. Um, so just being able to emphasizing the importance of that sustainment and, uh, um, and not just, you know, what's happening on the battlefield, but what's happening at the beginning of that supply chain as well. Along those lines, as you're saying that, I think a lot of times in the military circles, we want to pretend that somehow we can have our sustainment and our long-term supply chain somehow either curbed off or our special little piece of it, or we could get away from the civilians it's kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, and it's been done for centuries. In some ways, the market forces, we have to have those to help shape the things that we can use. And so I think pretending that we can sort of have this, what I would call a more pure logistics of military only stuff, and and we're going to be able to build it on our own, ain't going to happen. And in fact, you wouldn't want it to. Mm-hmm. But 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 to your point, that you're exactly right. Just to kind of, you know, hit on World War II again, but Dunkirk, right? You know, people are going to like, we're going to make things happen. We're going to make it happen. Right. Yeah. A brute Absolutely. force. Brute Every time. As we look at history and all the lessons learned, um, you know, at the tactical level, at the strategic level, um, you know, and, and based on your conclusions of the past, you know, where do you see us heading into the future and what will remain consistent regardless of, of technology? So I, I think sometimes, um, first, I want to pay the positive piece of this um, logistics. And if we just break it down, very simple definition, right? Supply plus, plus transportation. And that's everything from the supply chain to the national economy to the raw materials that go into it, all the way to the tactical delivery of the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or the foxhole, or wherever that base, however you want to say it, that whole spectrum of things. Um, Americans are culturally as good at as is any culture in the history of the world. And it's it's it, it's amazing to see. We we think of it as a culture in a way that other militaries, other societies don't even imagine it. It's, it's on our brains at all times. Um, and some of that is due to the way the nation was founded, um, the vast distances people had to, to go without help. And so you just kind of, you think about it. And, and, and I have a quick funny anecdote. Um, I was traveling in, in Paris about 15 years ago. And um, I saw this little guy and he had this huge backpack on and a carabiner and all this kind of stuff. He had water bottles and all this stuff. And I asked my wife, I said, who do you think that is? She said, I don't know. I said, that's either some rock climber from Boulder, Colorado, or that is a C-130 loadmaster, I'm telling you right now. And sure enough, it was a C-130. <laughs> happened to be a C-130 loadmaster from Pope. Didn't know him from anything. <laughs> but if you go travel around the world. And you can figure out Americans not by our weight necessarily or our hair or what we're wearing. We are real loaded for beer. I mean, Europeans, they'll have a small backpack. Dude, Americans, we are ready to go. We are ready to go in the wilderness and strike out, man. We will not leave our stuff behind. And we, so the good thing of that is it's a huge cultural advantage that's so deep seated into our military that it kind of is a part of everything. So despite despite the fact that we look negatively sometimes about our logistics capability or how it's integrated with the three or what we're going to fail at, which is a good thing to do, um, we forget that culturally it's so strong. So I have great faith in the ability of our four community to support the warfighter no matter what, even if it looks helpless. I think that we have that skill and we've proven to have that skill over time. 
And that that is not going to change. No matter if it's talking about typing on a computer or 3D printing something, it's all the same stuff, getting the stuff there in the time that's needed to the right person. I think it's going to happen as much as I want to be, as we all want to take a look at things we need to do. So that's the, that's the first part of this is, and, and it's important that logisticians take that skill and have that confidence that they can do it because we can, we've shown time and time again, and that's not going to change. Tell America changes, that's not changing. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and, and, and then I think the, the real second big thing just goes back to that piece of, if you can focus on the humans first and the operational problems you have to solve to keep the humans alive, you will naturally win the, the battle of supply. So if you go with the first thing, like, okay, the first thing is I got to keep X amount of Marines alive on this Pacific Island. What operational challenges do I have to do to do that? When you go through those first, and then you start adding the other elements that you have to do. Okay. Now I got to bring their ammunition. Now I got to bring other things with that. When you focus on that first and then talk about the operational things that you can do, I think that that's a consistent thing that will serve you well. And I think that that, that has been a consistent thing the U.S. military has done, believe it or not, whether consciously or subconsciously, that has allowed them to, to win combat. Um, and, and again, just going back, as much as it is about the technology, as much as it is about kinetic kill chains and long-range weapons and fancy ways to print stuff and fancy ways to grow food and all this kind of stuff. It really is about, uh, about humans. And I, I, I just can't footstop that enough. And I think that, I, th I don't think that will change. So um, I, I really appreciate the the chance to talk about it today. I'm always happy to talk to anybody um, about this. I'm sure uh, Matt will leave my contact number. I'm happy to, I'm happy to take any pot shots at it. Or if I got any of the historical dates wrong, I'm sure I did. So uh, that, that's kind of, that's my points. So I appreciate the time. No, I, I really appreciate your time, sir. Uh, I, I appreciate your passion in the subject. I encourage you to dive into uh, Feeding Victory, uh, and you can find it where uh, books are available, right? I <laughs> I can't advocate for a specific seller here. Uh, but just to make sure I get the, the, the entire subtitle correct, uh, Feeding Victory, Innovative Military Logistics from Lake George to Quezon. Uh, outstanding book. Um, you know, not a whole lot of books on logistics, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's funny when I was doing uh, my research, um, you know, before, you know, before our conversation, I came across, there was a commentary that you did with like recommended books. Right. Yep. Uh, what I found was, in, like, what I found interesting was, uh, yeah, there like, uh, uh, you know, there were some other books that were specific on logistics, but the the one book that I think focused just on a on a campaign and a battle alone was Guadalcanal, just Absolutely. to kind of foot stomp how like holistically uh, logistics played such a massive role in that campaign and wasn't simply an accessory, um, but it was just, you know, it, it almost defined the campaign. It, it really did. And it's hard to, like I said, I, I can't foot stop it enough doing that. And we didn't even cover an eighth of what you could have covered, you know. Um, mm -hmm. just so there's just so much on it and again if people can read it and read it just for their own knowledge for your own and and bring your own background the lens of what you do today into that i think you will find some things that you can apply um, at work and for sure to your future planning Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.